Well, amen. It's a pretty good day so far, amen? Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. It is our normal habit here at Prince to walk through books of the Bible on Sunday morning. I have been going through the book of Philippians, and Lord willing, next week we'll pick right back up into that study and find ourselves at the very beginning of Philippians chapter 2. This week, as I was praying about what to preach this Sunday, it was my intention to continue on with Philippians as I would normally do, but felt led by the Spirit to take a break from our study of Philippians and preach to you an invitation of Jesus Christ. Easter, if anything, is an invitation, because if what we proclaim to be true is in fact true, it demands a decision from us. You cannot believe that Jesus died and rose again without making some decision. You have to decide whether you will ignore it or you will believe it, but some decision has to be made. So this morning, I want to turn to the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever preach as Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount with an incredible word picture in which he's calling all of those who hear him to make a decision. This may be one of the most counter-cultural passages in all of Scripture because it is in this passage in which Jesus, without hesitation, says that there, in reality, are only two ways to live. There is the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. And there is only one way to enter into the way of life, and that is through Jesus Christ. And there is no other way but through Jesus. So look at what he says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Listen, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Andrea and I had just been married about eight months, and she was, much to our surprise, five months pregnant. She asked me if I would be interested in running a 5K race with her. Now, I like to exercise, but I hate to run. As a matter of fact, if we were in some crisis moment and someone said, run for your life, I would just let them take me. <laughs> it, re it really wouldn't be worth it. But we had only been married a few months, and she wanted me to do this with her, and we were trying to do more things together, and she was trying to get me uh, exercising a little bit more. I think she had already seen in those eight months. I know it's hard to believe now, but the trajectory was not good. I was gaining weight quickly in those days, and she just wanted us to do something together. And so I thought, I thought, well, sure, I'll do it for a few reasons. I love my wife, and she asked me to do it. I wanted to honor her in doing that. I thought it would be fun for us to do something like this together and have this memory, and the biggest issue was this. If I ever had a chance of keeping up with my wife in a race, it was when she was five months pregnant. 
me at the height of my athleticism is almost equal to Andrea five months pregnant, almost. And so we decided to do it. We signed up, we got our little badges or whatever, and uh, we started running together. And it was a beautiful day. It really was more fun than I thought. I wasn't near as bitter as I thought I was gonna be. I wasn't mumbling things I shouldn't mumble under my breath as I often do when I run. We were enjoying our time together. We were talking and probably a little bit more than halfway through the race and then it happened. Right to my left, so Andrea's here, I'm here and we're jogging at a steady pace and I look right to my left and there is a woman who is passing me. She has got her hair in a bun and a little doily on the bun. She is wearing a long denim skirt and a button-up blouse. She's wearing nursing shoes. And there she goes, just right past me. Now, I would love to say in that moment that I was the bigger man, and it didn't bother me, but that would be a lie. It bothered me. And it wasn't the fact that she was a woman. Trust me. Hundreds of women had already passed me. <laughs> it was just the whole thing together. It was the combination of the fact that she was in her mid-60s, at that point, twice my age. It was the skirt. It was the bun. It was mainly the nursing shoes. Listen, a man has to stand up for himself at some point and say he will not let a woman in nursing shoes beat him in a foot race. I held it in for quite a while. She uh, continued to run and was out of my sight. And I never said anything to Andrea, but it was eating me up. And I don't know what came over me. It's probably something to remember that First Kings 18 episode when Elijah's in a battle with Ahab and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him and he outruns the chariot. It was something like that. I, something came over me. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Something came over me. I turned to Andrea and said, honey, I love you. And I know we... We came to do this together, but I have to take care of business. And <laughs> I left her and started running. I didn't see the woman in front of me, but I started running and running and running as fast as I could. And it was about 100 yards before the finish line in which I saw ahead of me two things. I saw, first of all, that the, the race was dividing. There was a little divider going through the middle here, and there was some going to the right and some going to the left. And I saw her. There she was right in front of me. I set my sights on her. And as I think back, I feel a little sorry for her. She was just out there enjoying her day, probably raising money for cancer research. And <laughs> she had no idea that a crazed lunatic was behind her ready to take her down and would have gladly pushed her aside in order to win. So I set my sights on her and I began to run as fast as I could. And from this moment on, I don't know exactly if this is how it happened, this is how I remember it happening, everything started to go in slow motion. It was very much, very much like that scene in Rocky III when Rocky and Apollo Creed are running together on the beach. You remember that foot race? It was almost exactly like that. Except instead of Rocky and Apollo 3, it was me and the lady with nursing shoes. But <laughs> apart from that, almost exactly like this moment, and I begin to run and run and run, and about 20 yards before the finish line, I overtook her. 
And I ran and ran as fast as I could, going at a speed I had never gone, at least that's what it felt like. I went through the finish line. I raised my hands into what, to this day, is my greatest athletic accomplishment of my life. (laughs) Everything wanted in me to turn around and look at that woman and say, I own you, woman. (laughs) I didn't say that because I couldn't breathe nor talk. (laughs) Here I was at the end of the race, and I was gloating in my victory, thrilled at what I have done, bent over, about to throw up, (laughs) hyperventilating, but I'd won. And I looked over to the side, and there was some officials from the race, and they were over there, and they were looking at me and talking, and I assumed what they were doing is they too were marveling in my incredible accomplishment. (laughs) I figured as they were talking and looking, they wanted to come over and maybe say something to me or get an interview, and So as I was standing there, one of the ladies did approach me. She said, hello, sir, are you okay? I said, yes. First of all, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like to thank my wife who's somewhere behind me and our little baby. I'm doing this for her. And began to just talk about all the reasons I'd won. And she said, well, sir, I'm sorry. I I just needed to tell you something. You finished in the ladies' finish line. I'm not making this up. My wife was was there. I didn't know there was a ladies finish line. Apparently, in that moment in which the race divided, there was a massive sign that said men to go to the right and women to go to the left. I didn't care about the sign. I had my eyes focused on the one person I wanted to beat, and I did. And yes, my name is listed in the list of ladies finishers in that race. Yes. My brother-in-laws, who are the athletic type, love to make fun of me for that. Yes, my greatest accomplishment has been tainted, just a little bit athletically, but still I won. At the end of the day, it really wasn't that big of a deal. It is embarrassing, and it's a fun story to tell. But, you know, I actually think about that situation quite often. And And I just wonder to myself, what if something exactly like that was happening in my life to a much greater scale, and no one bothered to say anything? What if I was going about my life and running as fast as I could and headed toward a finish line, but what I didn't realize is that I was running the wrong path, headed to the wrong finish line, not only damaging myself and my family, but headed to a dangerous place, and those around me saw it, but no one bothered to stop me? I mean, what if that's true of you? What if the reality is, is that this morning you are running, you're doing your thing, and you're going about your business, but you're on a dangerous path, headed in the wrong direction, and no one bothers to tell you. And the reason you should be concerned about this is because we live in a day and in a time in which our greatest virtue is not truth, our greatest virtue is tolerance. Meaning... That to tell someone they're going the wrong way and then to insinuate that you're going the right way is not something that appears loving but appears hateful. I mean, to have the audacity to tell anyone, listen, what you're doing is wrong, what I'm doing is right, seems to be in the culture in which we live the most unloving thing we can possibly do. And the fact 
that we live in a time in which tolerance is the greatest virtue, it should make all of us a bit frightened that we're headed in the wrong direction and no one has the courage to tell us. But Jesus, who because of his immense love for us, Because he is the way and he is the truth, did not shy away from speaking the truth to us, even in a time in which it seems that it might be an unloving thing to say. Jesus comes to the end of this message, which he preached to his disciples with all of the crowd watching him, and very clearly says, there are only two ways to live, and there are only a few who are on the right way. So this morning, I want to take just a couple of minutes to evaluate these two ways. There is the wide and easy way that leads to destruction. There is the narrow and hard way that leads to life. And the only thing I want to ask you to do this morning as we look at these two ways, to evaluate your life and to try to determine which path you're on. Because as it tells us, the finish line, which is the end of our earthly life, has eternal consequences. The path that you are on is determining your final destination. So let's look at these two ways together. The first one we'll simply call the wide and easy way. Jesus says in verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Simply, Jesus' statement that the majority are walking this way should cause all of us to listen a little more carefully because this is the way that the majority are going. This is the way in which the majority are calling you to go. It is said that the gate to this way is wide. Well, why is the gate wide? Well, because you don't have to give up anything to walk it. You can take all of your habits and all of your sin. You can take all of your earthly desires. You can take all of your dreams and all of your ambitions, and you can carry them with you. And there is plenty of room to get on this path with all of your junk because it doesn't demand you let go of anything. It's a broad way. And the broadness symbolizes the fact that anyone can get in. And you can take with you anything you want to take on that way. If you want to walk this way, you don't have to let go of anything. And that's the reason it says that the path or the way is easy. It demands nothing from you. It costs nothing from you. There is no great sacrifice on this way. Sure, for everyone, because we live in a broken world, there is heartache and there is difficulty, but It is true that if you choose to walk this way, you can keep everything you want to with you, and it is easy in that. It costs you nothing and makes no demands on you. Now, there is no limit to the amount of different ways on this specific way. There are all kinds of people with all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of beliefs that are all walking this same way. So think about it. The majority of people are walking in this way, headed in this direction, and on that path are people with all kinds of different views and thoughts. Now, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, which he's concluding right now, gives us 
three different groups of people, all a bit surprising, that he's identifying that are on this easy and wide way. First of all, on this easy, wide way, there are a lot of people who are, we'll call, the devout. Matthew 5 talks a lot about them. They're passionate about religious activity. Now, Jesus was speaking to many of those in these days. He was speaking to the Pharisees who loved to follow the laws and the traditions. They not only loved to follow the laws, they loved to follow the laws about the laws. They are Their love language was more rules and more laws, and their desire was to make sure everyone was following the right rules and laws. We all know rule followers, and these are people who believed in the traditions and wanted to follow all of them. There was also Sadducees who also believed in the law, but they had a sense that that the law might need to be updated a little bit, that we needed to be a little more modern. We needed to think more about the present than we did the past still holding on to those traditions, yet feeling a little more enlightened. Still, the two religious leaders of the day. There were the Essenes, who were a group of people who believed that the way in which you got holy is to be as separate from society as you possibly could. Completely unstained by the world, to live a complete separate lifestyle. And so, if you were to see these people, you were to think, well, my goodness, they're working the hardest to make sure there is nothing about them that looks unholy or unrighteous, trying very hard to be distinct from the culture. And then there are the zealots. This is the right wing of the day. They believe that the hope for the nation is through politics. They believe in the nation. They love the nation. And their desire is to see the nation delivered and freed. And the greatest heartbeat that they have is to see the right politicians in office because they believe the hope for the nation is in the government. So they're trying to do everything they can to overthrow a political entity that would be against them and their desires to see the Israelites flourish and succeed. Now, here are four groups that were all listening to Jesus speak. And they could not have been more different. As a matter of fact, most of them didn't even get along. You see, many times in which the Sadducees and Pharisees were in the same room, and then the issue of the resurrection would come up, and then they'd start to fight with each other. You have the Essenes, who would have nothing to do with the Zealots whatsoever. These people conflicted in every single way. But the strange thing is, as much as they were different, they were actually exactly alike. Because all of them were attempting to do the same thing. They were all attempting to set their own standard of righteousness and try to live by it. They had all created this certain way that they believed they needed to act in order to be right with God. They were all different ways, but all of them believed that if I go this direction, I'll be right with God. The problem is they missed the simple truth that no one can ever do enough good to be right with God. That Matthew 5, 48 says there is one standard of righteousness and it is God himself and God demands perfect righteousness. So if your desire is to be good enough to get to God, it is possible if you meet his demands, which is perfect, sinless righteousness. Problem is, Romans 3 says, none of us are righteous. None of us have lived that way. So it is impossible for any of us to do enough good to please God. It simply never works. 
And this is why, listen, in Matthew 5, Jesus, trying to get them to understand this, says things like this. You've heard it said that you should not murder. I say if you hate someone, you have murdered in your heart, and you're guilty of murder. Now, you've heard it say that you should not commit adultery, but, but I say if you lust after someone in your heart, you have committed adultery. You say, love those who love you. I say, love those who hate you. And he does that to expose that as righteous as we think we are, the truth is, if you look deep inside of your heart, all of us are murderers and adulterers and haters. And we cannot match up to the standard of a holy God. It is impossible to set our own standard of righteousness and think that if we keep it, we can be right with him. Let me tell you something. The devout come in all kinds of different ways today. There are devout Baptists. There's devout Methodists. There's devout Pentecostals. There's devout Jews. There's devout Catholics. There's devout Hindus. There's devout Muslims. And all of them are doing the same thing. They have believed that if they'll simply follow this prescribed way, they're going to be okay. And they go to church, and they serve, and they pray, and they're kind to others, and they're good spouses. The only problem is this. They are trusting themselves and not trusting Christ. At the end of the day, they actually believe that it is because of what they do that they're going to be made right with God. They're the devout. And in every congregation that is gathered this morning to celebrate Easter, there are on probably every row the devout who are not trusting in Christ but are trusting their own righteousness in hopes that if they just stay steady and do what's right, they're going to be okay. There's the devout, and they are on the wide and easy way. There's also the hypocrite on the wide and easy way. You see them in Matthew chapter 6. The hypocrite is, is simply an actor. Whether they know it or don't know it, they just want to play the part. So Matthew 6.1 says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. These are people who love to give, but only if someone sees them give. They love to pray, but only if someone hears them pray. They love to fast, but only if someone notices. Hey, are you okay? You don't look like you're feeling so well. No, I'm, I'm fine. You look a little peaked. Are you sure everything's okay? No, I'm, I'm good. I mean, I'm not great, but I'm, I'm okay. Don't, don't ask. I'm fine. No, really, are, are you sick? No, I'm just, I mean, I didn't want to tell you this, but I'm fasting. I'm on a seven-day fast, and I don't want to say anything, but if anybody asks, just tell them that I'm fasting, and that's why I don't look so good. <laughs> we all know people like this. They, they're doing the right things, but they're only doing it so that they will be noticed by others. And listen, they're fine as long as everyone thinks they're fine. Hypocrites, listen, they don't actually believe that their actions make them right with God, like the devout, but they just don't care. They're not doing it out of a desire to glorify God or to know God. They're doing it out of a desire to get praise for themselves. In, in that sense, they are their own God. They're living in such a way where they're simply longing for everyone to look at them and acknowledge how great they are. 
Now, here's the dangerous thing about being a hypocrite. A hypocrite almost always gets exactly what they want, but they don't get anything else. What does a hypocrite want? They want attention. They want people to notice them. They want people to think that they're right when they're not. And they almost always get it. If you're a good enough hypocrite, you can fool everyone around you into thinking you're something you're not And you get exactly what you want. You get praise and you get attention. The problem is you don't get anything else. That's the end of what the hypocrite gets. And you cannot tell me that in a room like this, there are not many of you who are simply playing the part, going through the motions, fooling everyone around you. But if you're honest with yourself, you will know that there is no real spiritual life. There's no hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you should be afraid because in Matthew 6, 6, it says there is a God who sees in secret and he rewards in secret. And so if all you're looking is for the reward of other people, fine, you're going to get that, but you will not get the reward of God. This is about your heart. Really evaluating if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. There's the devout. There's the hypocrite. And then also on this path, listen, is the secularist. The secularist, Matthew 6 talks about them a lot. These are those who are just indifferent to the things of God. It could be someone who seems very committed or someone who is careless, but the reality is is that they're really not concerned about God. They are, as Matthew 6 says, those who are storing up treasures on earth and not in heaven. They are those who are anxious about the cares of the world, about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear and where they're going to live Their life is simply godless. Now, let me tell you something about the secularist. A secularist could be an atheist or a church member. Now, this is big in the American South, which last time I checked, we are right in the heart of the American South where it is tradition to go to church. It is tradition to get a new Easter outfit and to come to church, whether you ever come to church or not, this is just what we do. And even beyond that, it's tradition to be a member of a church and part of a church. But the church today is filled with members of the church who, if they were honest with themselves, would say that God actually doesn't have that much say in their life. They're just not thinking about God. He's not determining their decisions. He's not determining their direction. Whether they know it or not, they're practically living like an atheist where God is not a part of their life. They are not, as Matthew 6.33 says, seeking first the kingdom of God. So I want you to think about this. There, There are all of these different people. There's some that look so devout. There are some that are just playing the part. There are some who are really just living in a godless way, and all of them are walking the exact same path. Some of them are very committed. Some of them could care less about the things of God, but they all have one thing in common. The one thing I have in common is this. None of them are trusting in Jesus Christ, and all of them are headed to destruction. As Jesus said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And because it is easy, those who enter by it are many. The wide and easy way. Just for a moment, let's look at the narrow and the hard way. Because Jesus says in verse 14, there is another way. The gate to this way is narrow 
and the way is hard, but it leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, look at verse 13 at the beginning. There is a command that begins this passage when Jesus commands, enter by the narrow gate. Jesus is commanding us to enter by the narrow gate. Why? Because it alone leads to the way of life. But what is the gate? I mean, how do you get into this path that leads to life? Well, very simply, the gate is Jesus Christ. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am life. The gate, in order to enter into the path that leads to life, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the only gate. You cannot bypass the gate. You cannot bypass Jesus in order to get to the path. In order to enter on to that path, you must trust Jesus alone. Jesus is the gate. You say, well, why, why is it hard? I mean, he, he says the gate is narrow, meaning there's only one way into the path of life. And everything in your eternal future depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. But, but why is it hard? Well, it's hard because it's actually the way of Jesus. It is the way of the cross. You know, I, I don't know. It's just a metaphor, and so you have to be careful with how far you take it. But I, I like to think about the door leading to the way shaped like a cross, meaning that the only way you can get through it is if you take all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your ambitions and all of your habits and all of your past and all of your life, and you have to let it go and do this, and it is only when you do this that you can enter through the gate. It's hard because it demands that you repent that you leave everything outside of the door and enter into the gate like this, Jesus, I am yours. Do with me whatever you want. And I am willing to walk the path of self-denial and death to my dreams and my ambitions in order to get on the other side of the door and grab a hold of your life. It's hard because it demands you repent. You turn from your old way of life and choose by faith to follow Jesus Christ. Why? Because you have believed by faith that only Jesus can get you to heaven and only his way leads to life. And you have trusted him to such an extent that you're willing to let go of everything in order to go his way. It is the path of the cross. And listen, I, I want to tell you, according to Matthew 5, it is also the path of mourning. It is the path of meekness. It is the path of mercy. It is the path, path of peacemaking. And it is the path of persecution. So, so I'm not here today to tell you that if you trust Christ, everything in life is going to get better. I'm here to tell you that if you trust Christ, life will be hard, but it is the only way to experience life as God intended for you to have it. No, it, it is stated right here. It is the hard way. But listen, it is the only way if you have any desire to experience life now and life in eternity. You say, well, where does it, where does it lead? 
The gate is narrow. You have to repent and go through it like this. The way is hard, but look at verse 14. It leads to life. Listen, the reason this morning that we have gathered to celebrate the resurrection is because the story of Christ is that Christ did walk the path of suffering. He walked the path of self-denial. We're about to get to Philippians chapter 2 in the following weeks, which is all about Jesus denying self in order to walk the way of the cross. So Jesus walked the way of the cross, but listen, the way of the cross was also the way of the resurrection. Listen, here's the problem, is that there are so many who want the resurrection life without the path of the cross. But in order to get to the resurrection, you have to bear your cross. So what Jesus is saying is this, if you will be willing to sacrifice everything for me, to come to me with complete abandon, with reckless abandon, what you will receive is the resurrected life of Christ dwelling in you by the Spirit. You will come to experience life as you were intended to live it. And it's not that it begins sometime in the future. It begins at the moment you trust Christ. And it will be the most miraculous thing you have ever experienced in that at the same time while life is hard and the road is not easy, you are experiencing a type of abundant life that you never knew was possible. Now listen, it's the way of the cross. It's also the way of the resurrection. And here's Jesus 2,000 years ago giving this incredible word picture, helping us to, to think about the path that we're going and the destination in which we're headed and what we're trusting in hopes that we might have eternal life. And 2,000 years later, the message is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. That Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a sinless life. Why was it necessary for him to live a sinless life? Because God demands perfect righteousness. And he lived a sinless life and died a criminal's death so that his death might be the payment for our sins so that he might take our sins and listen, we might get his righteousness. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father sees us through the lens of the perfect life of Jesus and declares us righteous and holy because of the shed blood of Christ. It is possible for God to look at you this morning and say, I declare you holy and righteous. Not because you've been good, but because Jesus was perfect and died on your behalf and demonstrated his power over death, his power over sin, his power over hell through his resurrection, which showed that when we enter into the life of Christ, what we get is this eternal life. As Christ lives even this moment, so it is that for all of eternity, those who are his will live and experience for all of eternity more and more and more life. I just want to tell you this morning, in an age in which it seems tolerance is more important than truth, I want to tell you the truth. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you are on the path to destruction. And God, in his infinite love, is giving you a moment to let go, to leave it all, 
to repent and say, Lord, I am willing to surrender myself to you because I believe that Jesus is the way. And by faith, I will let go of all of my hopes and dreams and ambitions. And I will say, Lord, I'm coming to you. Do with me whatever you wish. I believe that your death on the cross was sufficient for my sins. I believe I can only be saved by you. You see, because if you run a a race and you finish in the wrong line, it might be a little embarrassing, but that's it. But if you run this race and finish in the wrong line, the consequences are eternal. So the question I want you to think about is if you evaluate your life, what path does it appear that you're on? Because you might say, well, I prayed a prayer. I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer. I'm asking if right now at this moment you are trusting Jesus Christ and following him. I don't even care if at the back of your Bible you wrote the date that you prayed a prayer. Because if you're trusting in a date and not trusting in Christ, you are headed in the wrong direction. I'm asking you to evaluate your life and say, am I headed in the right way? Am I trusting Christ? And I pray by God's grace and for his glory. Some of you would give your life to Christ this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.